Hey, everybody, and welcome to 52 Weeks of Empowerment. I'm Andrea Pagnosi, your host. I'm also a career empowerment coach who is fiercely invested in getting everyone in 2022 to realizing their true career potential. This month, we have been heavily focused on what we're hearing in the career world about finding career fulfillment, but afraid to take the leap. One of the things that I hear from clients all the time is, I don't necessarily want to leave the place I'm at but I work in human resources or I work with leadership. I work in training and development and I want to really find out what is still driving turnover. What is happening with low morale? Why are people still seeking other opportunities? What can we do to really right the ship once and for all? Sure, you're going to have attrition in a corporate setting from time to time, but the reality is people are taking the leap now more than ever. A three and a half million people on average for several months of this year took the leap from where they were to somewhere else, whether that was opening up their own business. And in many cases, it still came back to leadership or to the corporation they were working from. And determining what is the best next step for you? How are you taking the leap yourself in a corporate environment to try to right the ship and stop the bleeding. And that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about today is how to inspire and get your executives in sync with your people once and for all so that they don't leave, so that morale is higher and there's better satisfaction and fulfillment inside the building. Our guest today is a veteran problem solver with this mindset. She has over 25 years of global HR and talent acquisition experience, and she helps innovate companies to define the infrastructure and core processes that drive a culture of equity and inclusion, which is one of the bigger things that has been listed as a reason in exit interviews for people to take that leap. Natasha Kahimkar is a strategic advisor and executive coach that implements solutions for corporate leaders and that yields clarity and resilience. And she focuses as well on team coaching and team effectiveness. And I know she's going to be a wealth of information today. Welcome to 52 Weeks, Natasha. Thank you so much, Andrea. I'm really happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you started working the organizational development side of business. So I actually started my career more on the OD side of the house, and I moved into more HR business partner roles and eventually sort of worked my way up to uh, more senior level roles and capped my corporate career at the chief people officer level. But I've always had a bias towards looking at organizations from a more complex perspective. So the way I, I often describe it is if you're a sci-fi fan and you remember seeing Star Trek where they would look at the layout or the blueprint of a ship or of a structure, and they would have the sort of virtual viewing of the different la layers of an organization. That's how that's how I look at organizations. I can see the multiple layers and the, the different branches of things in my head. And I think it's just sort of driven me in this direction to think more holistically about all the things that impact a specific situation or a problem that we might be seeing emerge. We're seeing a lot of weird emergences this year. Yes. Um, a lot of people leaving still in droves, even though companies are taking some time and effort to try to right the ship. And yet it's still happening. What do you attribute that to? I think the challenge that we've had is, but before this year, before end of sort of really end of last year, there was a lot of pent up 
mobility that was not happening. So people were nervous. They were uncertain about what was happening. The companies were in various stages of layoffs or furloughs or just holding tight, staying steady, or frankly, closing down. And I think what was happening was people were nervous about leaving. And so they didn't leave. And then all of a sudden, as things started to look like they were getting better, it's like having pent up demand, but all that pent up demand for change hit all at once. And it was always going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And the reality was it sort of all came at once, or it felt like it was all coming at once because it did. I love that. The only other analogy I've heard recently was actually one of my good friends, not in business at all, but we were having a lunch one day and she said, what do you do as a career empowerment coach? And I said, well, that's kind of a loaded question. And I started to walk her through and she said, you know, I've, I've seen this from the sideline as a wife of a gentleman that owns a business. And yes, he's had high turnover. And it seemed to me, she said, it's like watching horses at races. The second the gate opens, they run. And she said, that's kind of disheartening because he always led his business with the belief that people were happy, happy people were productive. They would stay. He invested a lot in their development. But sometimes what you think is happening isn't what really is happening. A lot of companies have turned to asking survey questions and they're over surveying to try to meet the needs of the organization and to really toughen up the organization, make them more resilient to thinking ahead and making sure that mass exodus doesn't happen. Your firm's area of focus is organizational resilience. What is organizational resilience from your, from your vantage point? Yeah. So at Melita Advisors, we do in fact focus on organizational resilience and all the pieces that go into that. We know about personal resilience or individual resilience. That's our ability to navigate through change and to be able to deal with uncertainty, uh, be able to deal with challenges. When you think of organizational resilience, now you're thinking about the organization's collective ability to um, navigate disruption, uh, maybe even crisis, to adapt to change. And the idea here is that it's not just onesie twosie. You got an individual who's resilient and another individual who's resilient and you put them together and now you have a resilient organization. It's in service of the organization's goals. With personal resilience, it's about you getting through. What I'm talking about is now the organization as a collective needs to be able to push through or or navigate through change or challenges and achieve its objectives. There's a collectivism that sort of comes into play, a sense of community in resilient organizations. And it's an ability to thrive and not just survive through crisis. Do you think that the shift from a communal environment where you're face-to-face in an office setting, the shifting to the virtual workplace was a hindrance in organizational resilience? That's a really great question. And I think it wasn't, it wasn't a new challenge, but it was, it was, it added some spice to the recipe. It made things a little bit more complicated. I think what the shift to remote and hybrid has done is it has actually highlighted a gap in our people manager skill set. I don't blame people managers for that because every company I've almost, almost every company I've ever talked to, one of the first things they tell me is, 
our people managers, we haven't really done anything to invest in them. There's only so much, I mean, there's a lot that an individual can do to learn and expand their horizons when it comes to leading people, but a company having a perspective on what it means to be a people leader in their environment is actually really critical. And it sort of sets the tone for what other learning or training or or development or growth or way of operating that is okay or is affected and within bounds and is what's going to make you be successful and help the company be successful. If a company isn't doing that and isn't setting the stage for that, it's so easy to say our managers are not as strong as they need to be. There's a responsibility on on behalf of the company that is often minimized or diminished. Yes. And I also feel that to your point, training has been done to some of these companies. Well, what are they doing to pull it through? That's it. You can have the best program imaginable, but if there's nothing to keep people beholden to and accountable to what they've learned and implement it and then sustain it and build upon that foundation, it, it's gone. I agree with you. And we tell our clients or our, and our you know, prospective clients this all the time. If you just are coming to us for training, my recommendation is you work with a different firm. I'm happy to make a referral. Our perspective is training is helpful but it's not the thing that's going to have impact. We need the container to include not just training, but what self-directed learning is there? What coaching is there? Not just one-on-one, but group coaching. So there's a little bit of peer pressure in place. What are the structures and systems that are going to force sounds so parental or directive? But what I mean is that there should be things that make the current go in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a river, and you want to redirect it, which hopefully we don't we don't do that. But if we want to redirect a river, we're going to shape the landscape in a certain way in order to have the flow of water go in the way we need it to go. We may want to do this so that water, when it rains, flows away from our house as opposed to towards the house. So that's a, probably a safer example. But in that mode, we can't force Mother Nature but we can help shape or redirect a little bit. And that's what I think companies can do by establishing processes in their performance cycle to ensure that there are mechanisms for feedback so that managers understand how they're doing and how to get better. That managers are expected to have goals for their own development and their managers hold them accountable before training and after training. There's some pre-post work or questions that not only the company's asking, but their own managers are asking. Mm-hmm. Because without that, I'm going because you're making me go, but you, my own manager doesn't seem to really care. So why really invest my brain power in it? We need to create the things that are going to have a mental Velcro effect so that whatever they're learning, it sticks and it's applied. The other thing too that I find very interesting is that as a coach who works with organizations, I'll have organizations come to me and say, we need to instill better coaching skills in our leadership. And they think that by creating coaches in the workplace, that's the answer that's going to stamp out everything. I understand where they're going with it because coaching skills do exhibit things like empathy and vulnerability, and they exercise a lot of two-way dialogue rather than dictatorial speech. And I get that, but not every great coach was a good leader. Not every leader is a great coach. So sometimes you're putting, I'll use the old adage, perfume on a pig. It's just not the skill set that they need, and you're not meeting the leader where they're at. It could be that fundamentally, 
they just don't lead well. They've been given this role or wanted this role, but either weren't trained effectively and haven't been tracked effectively. I think the coaching, and I think you sort of touched on this a moment ago, having that group coaching feel of a little bit of competition goes a long way is the better route because I don't know that everybody wants to be like a coach. There's some sort of a stigma attached to it for some. What are your thoughts there? So it's interesting what you said about people may not be right. It may not be the right match to be in a people leadership role where they have to balance being more directive and being more coaching and, you know, having that sort of split. And I say split because I think for some people, they feel like they can either tell people what to do, how to do it. And I don't mean in an obnoxious way, but my job is to guide versus somebody who really believes that the solution is already inside them and inside their per- their people and that their job as coach is to unlock that and have them get unstuck from whatever's blocking them from seeing the solution they already have inside of them. The fluidity that great leaders have to move between coaching and directing isn't present with everybody. And it takes practice. And frankly, it takes making mistakes. It takes having people reporting to you who are going to be upfront with you about what worked about that conversation and what didn't. And I don't know that we give that gift to managers in an effective way. I mean, we may give feedback, but may not be in the most effective way or an impactful way. And I think our managers don't, that's one of the reasons why people really struggle. I think the thing about working in a group, it's one thing to hear from a facilitator, from a trainer, and it's another thing to hear from a peer that you respect and admire and that they have said it works. So here's one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of this approach. I invited myself to some training that our sales organization and the company that I worked at was going through. And when I say invited myself, I was the HR business partner for that function. And they had a three-day training and I wanted to, it was an opportunity not only to participate in the training, but also to see everybody because it was a sales organization, they were not co-located. So I went through the training and there were a few of us who turns out invited ourselves, about four or five of us. And at the end of the training, they had seven weeks of follow-up that was facilitated by each one of the region directors. Well, us four or five hangers on, we didn't have a follow-up group and we really wanted one because we found the content to be so compelling and so applicable to our day-to-day, even though we were in different functions, that we asked for a follow-up cohort too. And so the lead sales trainer actually did this with us and he did the follow-up. What was so great was we would get together and we would have to read a chapter of a book together and then come back and have a chat about it. And one of the team members would say, well, you know, I haven't tried that. That's really, that's not me. I'm not going to, like, I felt very awkward about that. I, I can't see that working. I'm not that kind of manager. And to hear another member of that little learning cohort say, I tried it and I got hugged. (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) And now all of a sudden it wasn't the competition element, but they're hearing from somebody who tried something that even for them was awkward and it worked or they tried something, it didn't work. So they tried something different to be motivated by other people's uh, successes or to be motivated by other people's willingness to experiment a little bit, it opens up possibilities and it it does it in a way that's not hitting them over the head with a hammer, not saying you're in training, here's a framework, blah, 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 do it this way. This is the way to follow here. You're your Mad Libs version of how to give feedback. It's not about that. What are the things that you can wrap around what you've learned that personalize it, that put it into your words? And I think when people feel that they can embody what they're learning, that they can express a new concept in a way that's authentic to them, 
it feels more natural. They feel more comfortable. I think the thing that gets in the way though, is that first step of trying something new where people feel very intimidated. And now this has been working for me. Why would I change? And that, that is a big hurdle. And that's where the manager comes in and not to say what you're doing doesn't work. Sometimes it's working fine, but how do you get even better? And I think a manager can have a lot of influence in that. So telling their direct report, their, the manager reporting into them, you're great. You could be even better. And I want to see you shine. The team coaching approach is something I'm a big fan of. It makes people part of the learning process collectively, and it brings people together. And if you really come down to it, when you're talking to some of these large organizations that have had a lot of turnover in the last year, and they conduct exit interviews, you will find that many people are leaving, not because they really see greener pastures somewhere else. In fact, Sometimes it's a lateral move or it's the same job they're currently in. So it's, it's not a promotion that they're leaving for. It's a sense of community. It's that sense of being part of a collective where my manager wants to see us succeed, not just me or not just her or not just the chosen one on the team. It's more of a collective group. I like to applaud you for that because a lot of people don't see the value. They will group coach. They will talk as a team, but there's always the favorite or there's the chosen one and everyone else is sort of frozen or there's some sort of a dynamic there that's hierarchical. What I want to understand a little bit is you are an accredited team coach. How do you differentiate between individual executive coaching and from team coaching? What's the typical entry? Uh, it's a great question. You know, the typical entry point is there's been a conflict on the team that seems unresolvable. Almost always, it doesn't mean it's a knockdown drag out fight that Andrea and Natasha are, you know, at each other's necks. Like when it's not about that. It's rarely about that, frankly. It tends to be more we have this recurring pattern that when we blank, this happens. And that's when people typically want to dig in and do some team coaching. I will say it's a tough thing for leaders to say we need help with this. People want to be able to solve it themselves. Hey, I got to this level, I'm this successful, I should know how to figure this out. You know, we're all adults here. And there is benefit in having an objective person come in. So the entry point tends to be some form of conflict, or it's some form of drastic or radical change that's coming that people realize we actually are going to need some support to get through it or to design it the way we want to design it. Because sometimes the change is self-initiated. It's not that it's an external force. So the difference you ask between individual and team coaching is we sort of find ourselves needing to pull on all of our skills, not just the coaching, unlocking solutions that are already inside someone else, but integrating a little bit of training because you want to have some skills. You may need to introduce new skills to this group. You may need to help them discover it on their own, but you're, you're, you are guiding a little bit. I think the, the opportunity that we have when we think about team coaching, especially executive team coaching, now you're dealing with probably some strong personalities, or at least people who have decided who they are. They are conscious of who they are, what they're good at, where their strengths are. And they, they're very comfortable with that lane is to have the group now think about being more of a collective and so you're not thinking about your personal objectives and your team's personal objectives, but for senior executive teams, it's about the team's goals and the company's goals. And so your first alliance is to the executive team, not to your own team who reports into you. That is a big shift. 
And it requires a lot of conversation and, and some clear understanding on what that means. It doesn't mean that you are, are going to make certain resource choices anymore. Your choices are going to be for the benefit of the company and the team not your own function. And remember, most of us have risen up to this level having a steel strong spine. We are very clear about what we need to do. We're super confident. Vulnerability, we're asked to be vulnerable. So we may reveal a little bit of that. But it's typically about how do I get my function to look good? And what we're asking now is how do we make this team look good? It's interesting that you are focused on that because I was just thinking the other day about survey questions mm. and these glint is one example of, of a corporate survey that's used. I know there are various ones. I mean, there's a number of different satisfaction surveys that companies implement each year to sort of measure their effectiveness, people's fulfillment, and really try to identify the root cause of turnover and, and things of that nature. And it, when you hear about it, you'll hear managers make or break your experience. Managers are the reason why people leave. Managers, 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 and who they're referring to, in essence, are the frontline managers, not the executive team. And when you think of the questions, there are no questions on a survey about your executive team. Maybe there's a token, what do you think of the CEO's vision or something like that, but it is not really geared towards your executive team unless you're reporting directly into them. It's about your direct report manager, which is usually a mid-level manager. And how do you measure the effectiveness of an executive team? So a lot of these surveys, and I'm, I'm probably most familiar with Culture Amps uh, surveys, yeah. that they're, the questions that they ask tend to be more at the uh, broader level, right? So it's more about the company's goals, or they, they might ask questions about knowing what how what I do makes a difference in the company. So connection to strategy, connection to goals. But you're right, I don't see questions that are specific to executive team members. But our people managers are a reflection of the people they report to. So when I say that, I think about people, the manager that I report to directly is an embodiment of what their executives think are important, what they think is unimportant, what the priorities are, what should be rewarded, what should be, I'm not going to use the word punished, but what should be sort of diminished or, or reduced, they're a reflection of what's happening at the executive team level. Now, if there's a disconnect, if we truly have a, an executive team that is different than how the people managers are operating and engaging on a day-to-day -day basis, that's a different problem. And that's actually where I start to wonder about this first team mindset. Because if I have great managers on my team, but there aren't great managers other in other parts of the company, then I may be operating with that functional perspective, right? I need to be just as invested in every other function's effectiveness of their managers. And that's that could be a priority that that executive team takes on. But it's it's all of our responsibility. It's not one one group's responsibility. I mean, yes, the executive responsible for a function has to drive and, and monitor certain things, but everybody should care that there are differences across the company. And this is where looking at demographics by function can make a massive difference or location where you may have location-led leaders, where we can now start to look at our demographic data to say what differences are occurring across functions and paying attention to that. I know in some companies, uh, leaders get very protective. It's a sign of not having that first team perspective where you want the demographic cuts, but 
I'm not sharing my functional data with maybe I'll allow that I'll allow the high level differences, but the by question difference, I'm not going to get into that with you because it's not your business. That's my business. I'll stay out of yours. You stay out of mine. But until we have that broader perspective and that more in-depth perspective, we can't really solve the problem. It doesn't highlight for us where we need to look a little bit deeper. And I don't think the surveys are the be all and end all either. Back in the day, we used to, we, we would do a survey. It was a really big deal because it was, a lot of it was manual tabulation of results and a collection of, of, of results was more manual than we would like. And certainly the automation and the algorithms that are in place now make things a lot easier. But one thing that we used to do in a lot of companies, certainly the larger companies, we would follow these surveys with focus groups and we would really dig into the data. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's another way to drag out doing anything about the results. Sure. But on the other hand, if you move quickly, since we are able to get the results immediately after we close a survey with some tools, there is no reason why we couldn't have focus groups already set up based on the data that's coming in and run focus. This doesn't have to be with everybody in the company but run focus groups and actually target and get answers for the questions that we're a little bit fuzzy on. Focus groups are such an intense second layer to finding the answers in an organization. And I find the ones that are the most meaningful to the workers are the focus groups that include the executive team. They should be part of the process, not here's the problem, go fix it focus group or go fix yeah. the agency or go fix it consultant. They're part of the conversation. Conflict is a really tricky topic that you touched on earlier. What are some of the barriers for CEOs to actually dig into conflict? Why are they avoiding some of the focus group type feet on the street connectivity that could be very meaningful to organizations? Often CEOs just want things to go away. Mm. Like this conflict that we're seeing or this pattern that we're seeing, it's a distraction. And if I focus harder on our company goals, and if I just say more about what we're trying to achieve, then you know people will fall in line. They'll, they'll get the message. Sometimes there's a direct conversation of like, you need to stop. It's not the collective conversation because it might, in some cases, people feel like it, it's a distraction. The other thing that happens is sometimes leaders are actually afraid to tackle the challenge. Why is that? Well, they've assembled a leadership team that they're proud of, or they feel good about, or Someone may have specialized skills. You spend a lot of money to recruit great leaders or to promote great leaders. You've, you've spent a lot and invested in that. And now you're having a problem with somebody or the, between a few people and they don't know what to do. So they get scared about what I'm going to do. So fear, like in individual executive coaching, fear is a big one. It's fear of it taking over, fear of having to have a difficult conversation with someone that you're scared to lose. Sometimes it's fear of letting go that you may not know everything. So the conflict may be that people are pushing back against you as CEO on the things that you want to do and the way you see the world. And there may be a lack of willingness to acknowledge that you may not have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I have worked with CEOs where it was my way or the highway. Seasoned executives are not buying it and they'll vote with their feet. And that same mindset trickles down, right? So when we avoid things, when we're afraid of things and are afraid to step into them, we miss the good things about the challenge that we have. There's a lot of great things that come out of conflict. We think of conflict as something bitter and 
um, involving anger and frustration and, and um, like a, a tense, uh, a tension in our physical bodies. And when we think about conflict as the opportunity to really engage in debate with a broad perspective, now we start to see the benefits of conflict. And because we to feel badly about conflict, it creates some sort of anxiety or stress in, in us. It's typically because we're not good at resolving conflict, by the way, or really digging into what's actually going on. But if we start to reframe the idea of concept and see it as a benefit to a company to engage in healthy conflict, that means we can actually engage in dialogue. I am not monologuing about the problem. It's a dialogue. We may set aside certain times where we debate what the problem is. We may set aside certain times of what solutions are. We may set aside times to refine those solutions. And Patrick Lencioni's Working Genius is a great model for that. This is a new book and there's a methodology where you can assess what are the strengths that your team in, as individuals brings to the table. Now, all of a sudden, you're capitalizing on the strengths that people have in order to navigate a conflict. And it feels much better. We're playing to everybody's strengths. The team is engaged holistically and fully in solving a problem together. Conflict becomes less about that tension and anxiety and that icky feeling that I need to be nervous about what the outcome is going to be. And I'm actually excited in, to engage in these deep conversations with my peers whom I've now realized how to respect and appreciate truly. And we end up with solutions that are robust that are well thought through and that our organizations can actually implement effectively. That's a wonderful thought process as well. Recently, you're looking at a lot of companies go back to better.com and laying people off on a Zoom and that have not done due diligence to really think about, I'm sure they consulted with legal. I'm sure that they contemplated other strategies, but really people get upset about is there's no forum for being heard. There's no equity in the decision to let us go is fine. We get it. There's nothing we can do to change your mind, but at least have the, the strength and vulnerability to listen to us in the aftermath, a Q&A forum or something like that. And seemingly there's a lot of CEOs out there that are not willing to put themselves in those types of situations. They're just afraid of what they're going to hear. So I love the thought process. I'm a big fan of Patrick Lencioni. I have not read that book yet, but I'm glad that you put a bug on that because that is on my to, to read list. When we talk about organizational change, I have to say that I've never seen anything happen in a place of comfort. There is that sort of healthy place of conflict as part of Melita invest advisors who invest the time in your clients to come to the table with solutions and strategies. How do you work with them? Interestingly, when it comes to things like when we talk about change, I remind people that it's actually not about the change itself. We can go from A to B by flipping a switch. We were at A before, we're at B now, make it happen. That's actually the easy part. The tough part is actually in the gray area in between, the messy middle. But it's the time between the situation, the, the scenario between A and B, that's actually the hard part. I know certain core elements about A. I know certain core elements about B. But what about this process? What about that interaction? What about how that conversation or that process is working? We don't have the answers right at the beginning. Some of it is we've got 
70, 80% of the story, maybe just 60% of the story of getting from A to B, but all the other elements in between, we don't have an answer to. And so what we encourage people to think about is not the change, but rather the transition. And that's a William Bridges model, the managing transitions. This is a concept that applies in work, in life, in community service, in all the elements of our lives. Stop and think about the transition and the space in between where we don't have the answers. We now start to recognize that even with an incredibly positive best change ever billing, we still have things that are unknown. We may actually mourn the things that are changing or the familiarity of things that were even though the new will be so much better and everyone acknowledges it, it'll be so much better. The habits, the patterns, the familiarity of the way I work, the people I work with, the teams that I interact with, the customers that I interact with, those routines are disrupted. And that is the hard part of change. And so we remind people that it isn't about the change, it's about the transition. It's a great mindset shift too. A lot of people are initially happy with a company will leave if the they focus too much on the change. Things are going to be different. I'm not sure. There's fear of the unknown. And in that place of unsureness, their mind starts to wander to greener pastures elsewhere, which yes. is funny because that place isn't going to do it the way you've always done it either. So that's changed in and of itself. So that's not always the answer. How do you prepare managers for those types of conversations during change? This is where individual resilience and organizational resilience comes into play. This is really where it comes home. We call them biomarkers of organizational resilience. So we've actually identified a few characteristics that are very present in resilient organizations. But one of them is a manager's ability to help their team navigate through transition and, and shifts like this. To be able to help folks really articulate what is it that is today? Like, So what is the current state scenario? What is the future state? What do they know? So actually map out what do they know? What don't they know? Somehow naming it is already a step in the right direction. Why? Because they're inviting conversation about it, right? When you name it, when you name what fears you, you now have a little bit more power over it because you can actually say, all right, I have a list of 10 things that I don't know and I was really freaking out about, but as I go through the list, there's only five that are really serious. The other five, eh, it's not such a big deal. There's an element of choice that managers can bring to the table, and this is something we forget when we're going through transitions. We feel a loss of control. But the reality is, in most situations in our lives and in our work, most, not all, we have choice. It may not always be a pretty choice, but we have choice. And this is where a manager can bring a perspective, particularly, which hopefully, fingers crossed, the managers are connected to the strategy and the overall goals of the company so they can tell that story. That is a really an important role that managers can make or break the success uh, or failure of a transition or a, a change that's happening in, in an organization because they are going to repeat the story. They'll not just repeat the story that the executives are sharing the way the executives shared it. So it's not scripted necessarily, but that they know how to adjust the message for each one of their direct reports, each one of their team members. Why is that important? Because it shows that I'm connected to your reality. I'm connected to the concerns and hopes and aspirations that you have. And I'm able to tie your concerns and your personal story to the company's story. 
That's such an important point. This month, we've been really uber focused on people taking the leap, whether it's to consultancy or it's opening their own business or it's to promotion as a leader. And this is such a perfect bow on the month because it really speaks to the fact that if you want to be a leader, great, but know that one of your most important things is the impact and influence you have on individuals, not a blanket, a team strategy. That's not the answer. The answer is to connect with each individual team member. Yeah. Tell us how your clients can work with Melita Advisors. Well, um, I invite you to reach out to us at info at MelitaAdvisors.com. We have a number of advisors on our team. We're about 14 people at this stage, and we're here in the U.S. as well as overseas. We have a, a breadth of experience in people, talent, and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We have accredited coaches. We have advisors. But we are very much focused on the overall umbrella of organizational resilience, and I invite you to visit us at our website at info at melitaadvisors.com to email us or melitaadvisors.com is our website. And we'd welcome an opportunity to chat. Well, we've welcomed this opportunity for you to chat with 52 Weeks. I'd like to thank Natasha Kahempar for representing Melita, of which she is the lead. Just a great opportunity to talk about shifting mindset that needs to be shifted. I really appreciate the work you're doing. I applaud you. One quick thing that you want to leave people with at the end of this year, if people are looking for true career fulfillment, what's your one piece of advice for them? My one piece of advice is know your why. Why do you do what you do? Why does it matter? Is it you do that makes you feel awesome? That when you're doing it, you're in flow. You are in the zone. When you are able to identify that, it gives you grounding and you can look for that in other opportunities that might come your way. And I fully echo that because if you really are in touch with your why, you will open up opportunities anywhere you go. So thank you, Natasha. Thanks everybody for listening to this week and this month. We look forward to connecting with you next week, same time, same place, even more power.